While the Monocle Weekly takes a break, we're still keeping up with leading figures from across the arts, music and culture around the world. Shirley Collins is one such. At 85 years old, she's spent a lifetime immersed in the traditional music scene. She's brought those decades of knowledge and experience to bear on her latest album, Heart's Ease. Full of beautifully realised renditions of traditional songs and some original compositions too, it's a cultural artefact that exists outside of time. I caught up with her to learn more about the album and how the songs of the past continue to resonate today. It's always been my conviction, because these songs come from other people, because their traditional folk songs have been handed down by often through generations, and because they've been sung by a particular person, and that's where I've learned that from, I can't just snitch the song and, and exclude them. You know, I, I just feel I want to say where it comes from, and I just think it adds interest anyway to, to set it in a context. Because if you just get presented with a ballad, say like the first one, people who aren't familiar with it might think, what's this all about? And so I I like to place it partly to pay respect to the the first singer. Well, I think that's it. And it also seems to talk to maybe a purpose these songs have, or at least a root in community where, where maybe their performance wasn't just a sort of recital, but was also something more conversational where different people sing and where the songs kind of communicate something broader than the story of each one. Well, that's certainly true as well, because singing, not necessarily so much nowadays because everything has changed so much, but not so many years ago. I mean, for instance, when I was in America in 1959, it was a, a shared thing. Um, although individual people sang, they were singing on behalf of their community, really, and on behalf also of the generations of people before them. I mean, like that first ballad is one that came over from England. It's well known here. It's still widely sung. But it was carried by early settlers. And then it, in turn, settled in, for instance, in that case, Arkansas. And it's just so fascinating to me as well, you know, the journeys these songs take. So I just think there's a wonderful mystery about how it survives. There was a little ship and she sailed on the sea The name of the ship was the Merry Golden Tree Sailing on the low and lonesome low Sailing on the lonely lowland sea They hadn't been out scarce days two or three Before they sighted the British robbery Sailing on the low and lonesome low Flaunting the Jolly Roger on the lowland sea It is amazing to think of a song travelling from southern England all the way to the wilds of then-unsettled America and to think about maybe the patina that it picks up along the way and how a later iteration of the song from the other side of the Atlantic might differ from one from over here. When it comes to finding your own version of the song, how do you do it? How do you digest the different iterations you've heard to find the one that you're happiest with? Well, in some cases, it's quite simple because you are following, you've learned it, as I did with that ballad, I learned it from Almeida Riddle, a single singer. And because her version of it and the way she sang it impressed me so much, 
I wanted to sing it as not as much like Almeida because she sings in a sort of rather strident Ozark Mountain style. But you're right about the pattern. I mean, every song that is passed on, you know, from say, I don't know where Almeida learned that herself, but say it had been passed on to her by a neighbour, then it would have slightly altered as Almeida picked it up. And most of these people, it's, it's an important point to make, I think, that they don't learn the songs from books or from the radio. They learn it from other singers, from other people. And so they might have learned it slightly imperfectly or they wanted to change something themselves. And, and so every song is different. I mean, I sing the words as Almeida sing them, but obviously I, I haven't got Almeida's voice and I have to sort of bring it back down to an English voice. But every time I sing it, I hear Almeida riddle in my head. Is that what, because I've also read you say that you have a huge memory of songs and there's so many that you still want to sing. It's an oral tradition that that's how the songs kind of live. As you say, they don't really live in print. No, they don't. Although, you know, fortunately, I mean, what, what's fascinating, I find, is that a lot of the folk songs for England, for instance, were collected at the turn of the last century in the 1800s, early 1900s. And because there were no tape machines then, of course, the early collectors, people like Vaughan Williams, the composer, he collected quite a few songs in the south of England. They had to write them down. And you're not sure you're getting the true representation of what the, the singer actually sang. But with field recordings, you know, once once we've got up to being able to use recording machines in the field, then you have a true representation. You've got the absolute essence and the absolute performance of, of what that singer expects she's going to do, he or she is going to do to that song, you know. So it's that wonderful directness from the field recordings that I find so invaluable, really. You just get to hear the person as well as to hear the song. One of the songs that I wanted to sort of zoom in on, so to speak, was Whitson Dance. And I wondered if you could just maybe just tell me a little more about that song. The words to it were written back in 1964, 67, 68, that time, by my then husband, Austin John Marshall. Mostly because he was annoyed with me, because I used to laugh at the old ladies. I sort of mocked the elderly ladies at the English Folk Dance and Song Society, who used to go to dances there and danced with each other. There were no men around, they danced with each other. And, you know, it was all very genteel and sort of dusty. And John said to me one day, don't you realise that those women of that generation are probably those who'd lost their sweethearts or their husbands in the First World War and had nobody left you know, to dance with but other women? Then he wrote the song, The Wits and Dance, about this, the ladies dancing alone. And... Uh, I set it to a Sussex traditional tune. We took it from there and I first recorded it in 1968-69 with my sister Dolly on that first album for Harvest Records, Anthems in Eden. And um, I just wanted to revisit it, partly because John, Austin John Marshall and I, he was a talented man, but we parted rather badly when we divorced. 
and I didn't see him for years. And he died not many years ago, and his two children had to go out to New York to see to his affairs and to bury him. And my attitude changed at that point. I thought, it's silly to hold this grudge when this person has produced you know, some wonderful songs. And so I, I decided to record it again. It's a much quieter version than it is on the original Anthems in Eden album. But I love the way it's sort of been drawn right down and is really sort of quiet and, and thoughtful. It's 51 springtimes since she was a bride But still you may see her at each Whitsuntide In a dress of white linen and ribbons of green As green as her memories of loving beautiful song and it's a beautiful story I think this idea of these old widows who who are dancing with each other in the wake of this great sort of generation destroying trauma is really powerful and it made me wonder about the kind of role of folk music today I suppose I was thinking about the way that maybe it hasn't been quite as violent as the Great War, but we have and are living through times of trauma, of struggle. You know, there are different social issues competing that are having quite a serious impact on the social fabric of civic society in the UK. And then on top of that, there's this quite scary cloud of coronavirus that does have an impact on people and that kind of negates even the possibility of finding comfort in community. And I wondered about the role that this sort of traditional music has in helping to build community and in helping to share a cultural experience among a set of people that maybe gives them some sort of unity of purpose or outlook. So many of the folk songs come from the 18th and 19th centuries when a lot of men, especially on the sea coasts of southern England, were pressed away to fight in the navy. And those songs still come through to us and just give us an idea of, of a loss of men to war. What I'm not sure you can do is make it modern, start a fresh sort of, you know, with what's happening nowadays. Because I mean, people will write protest songs and, and songs about this, I'm sure. Whether they're going to be lasting ones, you know, who can tell? We don't know. But they would be written in a mode, I think, that wouldn't have much to do with traditional music. I think they'd be rather like protest songs or more popular songs or modern songs. And that's absolutely fair because, you know, most of the people are modern people. I just happen to sort of be able to go back centuries with my repertoire, so I find that easy. And those songs have stood the test of time as well. I'm sure there are going to be some songs written now that are really going to be of help to people and comfort people and, and good luck to them. But what I find is that I still find comfort, more comfort in the old songs because they still have that same reasoning behind them and the same longing for things to be better. But they're put so beautifully. I mean, the melodies are so lovely and the words just work so well in them all because they've just been, as you say, honed by, you know, people down generations. So we'd have to wait another generation or two to see if songs written nowadays would have the same lasting effect. These songs, do they exist outside time or do they have a contemporary relevance for each generation, having been honed over so many years? I think they do have a, a resonance for each generation. It's whether each generation wants to listen to it, you know, because 
we're supplied with so much music, we're inundated with it. So much of it is music business, you know, that just floods us with music. I mean, I know, you know, it's, it's popular music and people love it. I tend not to like it because um, it just feels like it's got built-in obsolescence, you know, and that nothing's going to last about it. I'm just always full of admiration for people who, you know, young people or even middle-aged people who seem to know work from pop singers, you know, several decades back. And I just, I can't hardly recall a single song in my head, <laughs> unless they're a couple of hundred years old or more. Father, Father, build me a boat That on the ocean I'll go and float And every kingship that do pass by There I'll inquire for my sailor boy What does that repertoire of such old songs with such a, a kind of long view into the past how does that change your relationship with the past? I mean, uh, at one point in my life, I had a very romantic view of the past. And I mean, I've always loved England, mostly because I grew up in Sussex during the war. And we were taught to love England and we loved England and we loved the countryside. And I still do. But the way things are nowadays, I just find hard to like. You know, I'm a staunch pro-European. I don't want to leave Europe. And I just cannot understand anyone really who would who would vote to leave Europe. Why? And so I, I just feel that it must be something in the water, I think. There's something <laughs> that makes them lose their heads and and want to be little Englanders. And this is one of the problems about singing English folk music. You no know, people think perhaps you're a little Englander too, but I'm not I'm a big Englander, but it's my England that I love, not theirs. I think there are also some interesting conversations taking place at the moment around how we memorialise the past and who gets memorialised and how the past is taught and maybe misplaced valour and, and a kind of rose tint on what, by modern standards, can kind of fairly universally be agreed to have been atrocities. And I wonder if maybe some folk songs take that rose tint off. As you said, they kind of... Their stories about being press ganged, their stories about being forced into service for a colonial power and being taken far away from your family and having to do terrible things overseas and not knowing if you'll ever come home and see your family again. And I wonder if those kind of songs maybe put the lie to the contemporary jingoistic myth of colonial Britain as a force for good. Well, no, that's true, isn't it? And um, coming from my working class background, I never sort of thought of England as merry England. It was we were ruled always by the upper classes. And even something as simple as on my previous album, Lodestar, there's a song that where a mason hasn't been paid for building his Lord's Manor House and he's out for revenge. But every bit of history you read, it's like William the First built the castle at Hastings. Well, of course he didn't. You know, he couldn't. He had to have his masons and his labourers. But it's always somebody gets the credit, but not the people who did all the work. As soon as the Lord had got out of sight, and pinch my sweet baby which caused it to cry while the nurse sat singing oh hush a lullaby 
that story about a mason not being paid for his work by a landowner sounds rather like a certain US president at the moment who's famous for not paying. <laughs> so it's kind of plus ça change, eh? But that song, for instance, goes back to something like the 13th century. It's been being sung throughout the country that long because I think enough people thought that's not right. You know? Although the, the revenge he took was extraordinarily horrible. <laughs> People have to listen to the song to find out exactly what that was. <laughs> Shirley, just finally, I wanted to talk about the last track on your album, which I thought was really beautiful, a really wonderful end note, and which came rather like poignantly, maybe looking towards the future. It's got this beautiful hurdy-gurdy drone over the back, this music concrete recorded sounds of the sea. It's called Crowlink. And it's named after a part of Sussex that you love. Is that right? It is. It's on the South Downs. It's right on the cliff edge by the English Channel. It's on the South Downs way. And over the years, I've walked the South Downs, Lord knows just how many times, because it's the best place for me to be up there, out in the air and just sea air and salt air and wonderful little skylarks overhead and... uh, Occasionally a biplane will fly overhead and you feel as if you're in a 1930s tourist poster. But Crowlink is incredibly important to me. It's where I've, all my family and friends know that's where I want my ashes to be scattered, providing they, the wind is in the right direction. And um, my son, Bobby Marshall and Matthew Shaw, who put this piece together, they walked out to Crowlink because I'd often talked about it to them and they went walking there. And luckily, Matthew took his recording machine and recorded it live there and then came back and, and added his some subtle and wonderful drones and electronics. And I wasn't planning to have it on the album, but when I listened to it with, with Bobby and Matthew, we thought, you know, this would just be the right ending. It takes us right up to the present. It also refers back to the past in its way, but it is, I hope, a you know, link for the future so that we can, if there's going to be a third album for Domino, I shall call it Crowlink and um, take it from there and, and see what happens. You know, anything is possible. Shirley Collins there, and her new album, Heart's Ease, is out now. This interview was edited by the great May Lee Evans. I've been Augustin Machilari. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>